Amen. Well, we could certainly maybe relate a little bit to that passage, uh, wars and rumors of wars and, and those falling away into sin and being given over to deception. And what we're going to do today, Lord willing, and with the Lord's help, is see what is the church's response to that. And we're going to do that by looking at the passage we were in last week, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. We looked at verses 4 through 6 last week, and so the focus today is verses 7 through 10, and we're going to consider the idea of spiritual discernment and spiritual deception. Remember, we looked at verses 4 through 6 last time, and so we'll recap that a little bit because it's really a springboard into the rest of the passage, but we must remember that this topic was of primary importance in John's day. There were false teachers and false religions springing up, and to be able to distinguish between the true children of God and those who were children of, devil, of the devil was of utmost importance to the local church. You think about the Gnostics of John's day. They would profess, I think, this kind of form of Christianity, and you say, well, they weren't Christians. No, they weren't, but they came into the church. They somehow numbered themselves with the saints, though they though they denied core tenets of the Christian faith. They wanted to infiltrate the church and to spread their false teaching. And false teachers, dear friends, are masters of disguise. They will hide themselves, they will hide their false doctrine, and they will do so well. And with that in mind, John gives us here a test, not of doctrine, but a test of morality. The practice of one's life revealing their true heart and character. Simply put, uh, genuine Christian faith is not compatible with the practice of ongoing sin, with the habit and, and the pattern of sin. That does not compute, that does not add up to and join itself with one who is truly in Christ. And what do we need to fight against that? We need spiritual discernment against spiritual deception. So let's look at the text We'll read verses 4 through 10 and then ask the Lord to help and to bless our time in his word today. Would you please, if you're able, stand with us for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, this is holy and inerrant, inspired scripture, scripture the very word of God. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. May the Lord bless his word, and may he write it upon our hearts 
so that our souls can be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. You may be seated. Let's join together in a word of prayer. Our God, you are great. You are in the heavens. Holy, magnificent, glorious is your name. Lord, we are your people, the people of your pasture, the sheep of your hand. And I pray, God, that it is with humble hearts that we come before your presence this Lord's day. Lord, to you belongs all blessing and honor and glory and power and dominion forever and ever, both in the world, but especially in and through your church. You're redeemed, the ones that you have reconciled to yourself through the blood of the cross of Christ. Lord, in all and everything that we do, may we never, never lose sight of the power and the glory and the weight of the cross. Lord, may we remember that it is every bitter thought, every evil deed that crowned the blood-stained brow of Christ. May we understand that if we are redeemed, that every sin had to be accounted for. Every sin had to be laid upon Christ at the cross. And may that thought, Lord, break us. May it humble us. May it bring us to repentance. And may it spring up in us a devotion to obey all of the counsel of your word. Lord, as we embark on this journey in the text to learn and to discover and to apply and be encouraged and exhorted and rebuked and corrected, Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us in this work. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do this work, not just help us, because if, if we strive in any of our strength, we will fail. Lord, you are strong and mighty. You give us your spirit in order to help us understand and apply the truth of your word, and I pray that the spirit's work would be clear and evident in us today. Lord, I pray that you would shine a light of truth in our hearts pray that you would reveal sin to us and bring us to repentance. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are humble and eager and ready to receive and apply your great truth. Would you sanctify us in the truth, Lord? Your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would also unite us in the truth that we would be able to rightly divide and apply your word. Pray that by your word, each one here would first come to a saving knowledge and relationship with Christ through faith and repentance. And then that through your word, each one would be sanctified and we would put off the flesh and that we would put on Christ in you each day. Our great and gracious Father, we need the help of your Spirit in this endeavor. We certainly cannot accomplish this by our own strength. 
Lord, I pray very specifically that you would help us to concentrate our minds and our hearts on the truth that's before us today. Lord, help us not to allow our minds to wander. Help us not to be weighed down by the burden of sin or the burden of a busy work week past or a busy week upcoming. But Lord, grant us to focus, grant us to receive the truth, and grant us to apply it to great degrees for the express purpose of your glory and your people. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we saw last time, John does not hold back as he writes here. He writes in a very clear way. He writes in a way that really would make many modern-day evangelicals uncomfortable because many today are not comfortable with this idea of division between the children of Christ and the children of the devil all on the basis of the holiness of their life. Now, we know the holiness of the life is the outworking of faith. It's not our merit. It does not justify us. But the way we divide between children of God and those who are children of evil is through the holiness of our lives or the lack thereof. John describes two groups, only two groups, children of God and children of the devil. And he even says that they will be obvious in their practices. So there's not this middle, blurred, gray area of those who may or may not be in the faith. Yes, in practice, that can happen at times. But what John makes clear is that most people make it very obvious which side of the fence they fall on by the practice of their lives, the practice of their lives that flows out of the devotion of their hearts. So it's not someone's testimony. It's not their religious speech. It's not their knowledge of the Bible. It's not their appearance of spiritual maturity or spiritual depth that confirms them as a child of the Most High. The primary way that you identify a child of God is by the practice of their life, by the fact that they are holy just as He is holy, by the fact that they are striving to be pure just as He is pure. This is the first and most important mark of a follower of Christ. What does your life look like? The way of Satan, the way of our great opponent, is the way of deception. To say one thing and to live and to practice something completely opposite, to conceal the, the trueness of your heart through things like flattery and, and real, religiosity. John says, do not be deceived. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit, the evidence of their lives. We must stand upon the solid ground of the truth. As we said last week, we must cling to the solid rock of Jesus Christ because when you hold to the truth, you will be hated. It's what we just read in Matthew 24. Jesus said, the world will hate you for my name. For being my follower, you will be hated. And you will be even more despised, dear friend, when you take a hard stand upon the truth in this dividing line of the children of God and the children of Satan. When that 
hatred comes, beloved, cling to Christ. Stand upon the truth. Last time we set forth kind of a, a summary purpose statement for these verses, and I think it's helpful to repeat that to, to help us understand the, the overall direction that we'll go. And that is that we said that believers must pursue spiritual discernment that clearly distinguishes between the practice of those in Christ, the righteous practice of those in Christ, and the sinful practice of those who are children of the devil. That ought to be our goal. That ought to be our pursuit, that we practice spiritual discernment so we are not deceived. Because deception allows all kinds of sin and evil and hardship to come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we began last time by looking at the ideas uh, of sin defined and our salvation described. And we really focused in on three words. Last time, the word sin, the word lawlessness, and the word practice. Sin, hamartia, it, it is the idea of missing the mark. You can sin by commission, by doing something wrong and sinful, and you can sin by omission, by missing the mark, by not doing what you are commanded by the Lord clearly in His Word to do. One definition that's helpful is that you can miss the mark in thought and feeling or in speech and in action. So it's not just your actions, nor is it only your heart. So both heart and action matter when we talk about sin. John said sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. We, we talked about lawlessness a little bit earlier in our Bible study. It's that which is anti-law, actions that do not accord with or submit to the written, revealed law of God. And really, this whole passage hinges on the third word that we saw, practice, poieo. It's remaining in something. It's doing something and remaining in it. It's an action that becomes a habit and pattern of your life. So it's not just a one-off sin, but it's the habitual pattern and practice of breaking God's law and missing the mark. It's not just those sins of commission, but the sins of omission, not properly loving your neighbor, not praying for your enemies and blessing those who hate you and persecute you and do all kinds of evil things against you. Sin can be doing things like lying or stealing, but it can also be failing to practice what God's Word calls you to do. And I think we would all admit that it's that second idea that we probably struggle with more, and we need to give a carefuler attention to the detail of that, that we do not omit certain commands of God. Failing to do His commands, dear friend, is every bit as sinful as breaking His commands. So we saw sin and lawlessness and practice defined, and then we shifted our focus encouragingly, I believe, and helpfully to the glorious description of our salvation. John says that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Our salvation really can be boiled down to that statement. He appeared in order to take away our sins, to, to lift their burden off of our shoulders 
to lift that condemnation, that payment, that penalty that was on you. He lifted that burden. He placed it on his own shoulders, and he bare his father. He bore his father's punishment while he was nailed to the cross. That is your hope and salvation that he came to take away sins. That is the good news of the gospel that he did the work. He didn't take away most of your sins and then leave some areas of purification for you to do. He didn't take away your sins and then say, now you go and be righteous and earn your acceptance into heaven. No, he did all of the work. He, as we'll see, destroyed the works of the devil. And he credits his righteousness to our account. How did he do this? Glorious and magnificent work. How did one man appear in order to take away sins? Because John says, in him there was no sin. Perfect, pure, spotless, and righteous. The the eternal Son of God in the flesh who lived holy and righteous every moment of his life. So it's a glorious salvation. It's a finished work. Then let's realize from verse 6 that no one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. So this glorious finished work of Christ also has outworkings in our lives. We don't abide in him when we practice sin. We don't prove that we know him and have seen him and have our life in him when we continue to run back over and over and over again to our sin. Dear friend, you rob Christ of his glory when you sin. You you undermine the transformative work that took place at the cross when you continue in your sin. As I said a moment ago, this is not a requirement of justification. Your righteousness, your, your practical, everyday righteousness is not a requirement of your justification. But salvation does not just stop at justification. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And if you're going to be sanctified, you must abide in Christ, and you must not practice sin. So that brings us kind of up to speed, just a a brief look at at what we saw in verses 4 through 6 last time. And, And now today we want to see the saints discerned, we want to see Satan destroyed, and then the seed of God distinguished. Saints discerned, Satan destroyed, the seed Distinguished. Look at verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8, and we'll see saints discerned. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, let's not be so quick to get into this, this instruction that we miss what John says to begin verse 7. Little children, those whom John has authority over in the faith, those for whom the, John is responsible to the Lord, those to, for whom he has a paternal love. This isn't a term of derision. He's not speaking down to these people, but he's reminding them of his fatherly love for and compassion for these people talked about this before, but I think it's worth repeating over and over and over again because it needs to become a common practice of our lives. But this reminder of love and affection is so important. 
when you are going to a fellow saint to give an instruction or an exhortation or, or to confront a sin. And this is not flattery. Flattery clearly is sinful. It's commanded that we don't be flatterers in Scripture. But this type of genuine affection is helpful and useful. It acts as a plow tilling up hardened ground of the heart so the heart is soft and ready to receive the seed of the truth that's going to be implanted. And you can take action in that plowing up of hardened ground simply by showing love and care and affection for a brother or sister. And realize, dear friend, that doesn't really hold much water if, if it's not something you do on a regular basis. This needs to be, we, we've defined the word practice, this needs to be a practice of our lives, a pattern and a habit of our lives. You know, I, I think those of us maybe in, in kind of the reformed-minded tradition, uh, honest assessment here is that we can tend to be a little mechanical relationally. And then in a room with, with a lot of engineers, I think that is like multiplied infinitely by just the way that the Lord has wired us. So especially to you brothers who are of that same mindset, that, that same thought, that same way of life, we need to be careful here. But we all need, it's not just the men, all of us need to be careful to apply this idea to willingly practice and, and to fight to show genuine love and affection for one another. Because it's through this that the Lord will soften the heart. If you go to plant a seed right now when the ground is just so hard and so dry, you go scatter a seed, it's not going to take root. You've got to till up the ground to soften it, to, to turn it over, to ready it to receive the seed. We need to do so with one another's hearts when we're bringing correction and instruction and even encouragement. And so following this, it makes sense then that John is about to give a meaningful and a clear exhortation. He says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. Make sure that no one deceives you. This is an imperative, active statement. To deceive means to be led astray or to be turned from the right way. So it's someone who is maybe on the path of truth and they are turned away from the path of truth and led into some form of error. And this is an action that is sought out by those who Paul would describe as enemies of the cross. These false teachers who seek to infiltrate the church, they will try to deceive you and to turn you from the truth and to lead you astray. And John says, make sure that no one deceives you. So what is this deceit? That, that's really the important question to ask. And, and really, this is one of those hinge points in this entire text. What is the deceit that's being practiced here? And I, I think from the context, we can see it's those who blur the lines between righteous living and, and sinful, wicked practice. So how is that done? How do these deceivers blur the line and, and it's not necessarily, I don't think, by covering their own tracks. Uh, a deceiver, the, these people, they, they probably sin too much to rely just on covering their own sinful practices to deceive you. So what else do they do? Uh, they, they will try to claim that those who practice righteousness are not practicing and pursuing a proper and biblical righteousness. They will often try to 
to zone in on heart motives and just apply motives that are not really there. One end result of these type of people is constantly calling other people legalistic because they can't really get at the practice because they have to divert away from practice because they themselves are practicing sin. And so they get and start pointing in at heart motives and they say these people are legalists or they just diminish the call for practical righteousness. That's another common attack of deceivers. They just try to take what the Scripture makes so plain and clear and say, oh, yeah, but we're, we're under the covenant of grace. Christ attained all the righteousness we need. We don't need to pursue that. You're, you're just being heavy-handed with the truth. So either way you slice it, they're diverting away from what is true and what is revealed and what is actually being practiced. One thing I would draw out from that is that we need to respect and even encourage each other's biblical convictions, because to do otherwise is antithetical to what we're studying here. Now, sometimes, dear friends, let's all hear this with a humble heart, sometimes convictions need to be fine-tuned, right? Sometimes we don't have it all right. Perhaps we go too far sometimes, and you need to be willing to have a brother or sister faithfully curve you back towards the path. But when we're doing that correcting, we need to do it with an encouraging heart and not by diminishing and belittling and cutting down that brother or sister. Because convictions that flow from the heart, dear friend, that flowing from the heart is a good thing. That's what we need to use. Because it's a lot easier to, to pull the reins back than to fan into flame someone who does not want to pursue righteousness. John says then that the one who does not practice righteousness, the one who practices sin, is of the devil. So so this is the contrast then. Those who practice righteousness are of God, and and we need to encourage that and press that in one another. And the ones who practice sin are of the devil. And the devil, John says, has sinned from the beginning. Jesus spoke of this in John 8. Verse 44, he said, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That's what flows out of Satan, and that's what flows out of his people. Jesus said, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what's the clearest separation between the saints and the children of the devil? It's the prevailing nature of their hearts, which is seen in the prevailing practice of their lives. Satan speaks lies. He's been a murderer from the beginning because that's his nature. You and I have sinned from birth because that was our nature before Christ. But anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. The old things have passed away. New things have come. New life has been breathed into your dead soul by the Lord. And the way that you separate yourself from these children of the devil is by pursuing a heart-devoted practice of righteousness. Dear friends, there needs to be no middle ground. And that doesn't mean that that we walk around with a sense of pride and arrogance and and close up the middle ground. 
but that we understand how clear the Scripture is here. If the Lord wanted us to have a gray area, He would give us a gray area. But what He shows us is that there are two parties. There are two paths. The children of God who practice righteousness and the children of the devil who practice sin. We need to discern who are the saints. The proof is in the pudding. The evidence is in your life, the daily practice of your life, and the affections of your heart. What do you love? Do you love truth? Do you desire righteousness? Do you want to put to death the sin that remains in you, or do you just kind of go and dabble in it because, hey, you really get fulfillment in your sin? The proof is in your heart. Circling back to the beginning of verse 7, I I think as we've worked through, hopefully now you understand why John gives such an imperative statement. Some translations have this phrase a, a little bit differently, but I like the NASB here that says, make sure that no one deceives you, because deceives is in the imperative tense, and if there's imperative in that action, there needs to be imperative on our side to make sure that we're not deceived. Again, wrong identification of true converts leads to all kinds of difficulty in the life of the church. Consider if in a church, and there will always be this in the church, that there is a new believer, someone who is less mature in the faith, someone who's even immature in the faith, and Maybe in that church they have been deceived and they hold up someone who is not really a true convert. You know, they say the right things in a lot of ways. They they kind of hide their lives a little bit, but their practice is really not there. And, And what this then leads to, if we're not careful in rightly distinguishing who are true saints and who are true followers of Christ... What's going to happen is that immature saint is going to see this false convert who's held up as a mature believer, and they're going to follow their way. They're going to follow their example, and they're going to be led into sin. And church, our duty is to guard against that. Our duty is to nourish new believers and to bring them up to maturity. And if you maybe count yourself as one of those young believers, and I hope many of us would have the humility to understand that we are all there in a sense, you have a duty too. Look at the consistent practice of someone's life and make a gracious and loving but clear judgment in your mind whether or not that's someone that can be followed. And you do it, according to John, by the pattern and practice of their life. Not by what they say, Not by who they read, not by who they quote, not by how much time they tell you they spend reading and studying scripture and theology, but what is the practice of their life? John says we need to rightly discern who are and who are not God's saints. And then there's this great hope as we continue in verse 8. We see the saints discerned and then Satan destroyed. The Son of God, John says, appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works 
of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to give you a longer quote here than I normally would use, but it's so good and so helpful as we think about this work of Christ. It comes from Matthew Henry. So I encourage you to give your attention to, to understanding this statement. Matthew Henry wrote, The devil has designed and endeavored to ruin the work of God in this world. The Son of God has undertaken a holy war against Satan. Jesus came into our world and he was manifested in our flesh that he might conquer Satan and dissolve his works. Henry continues, sin will he loosen and dissolve more and more until he has quite destroyed it. Let us not serve or indulge what the Son of God came to destroy. End quote. So Satan's plan and work was aimed at ruining God's purpose in the world. When you think about the moment that Satan fell, what was his great aim? It was to receive glory to himself. He wanted to be equal to God Almighty eternally existing in the heavens, full of glory. Satan wanted to be like that. Satan's great aim is to steal from God's glory. How does he do it? Through temptation to sin, by entangling you in sin, by enslaving you to sin. Those are Satan's primary tools. His primary work is to steal from God's glory, and his primary means of doing that is to take those who profess faith in Christ and enslave you to sin. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Christ undertook this significant effort. He wages, as Henry said, a holy war against Satan. He overthrows all of the schemes, all of the plans, all of the purposes of the evil one. You know, we talk about this cosmic war between good and evil, between God and Satan, between Christ and Satan. But dear friend, realize that while we talk about it as a cosmic war, it really is utterly no contest. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternally existing as God, is full of power, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, existing from all eternity. He is infinitely strong and mighty, and he came to destroy the works of Satan, and he did so, and we'll see the consummation of that when Christ returns. When Christ wages a war, he wins every time. When Christ seeks to deliver a soul from bondage to sin, that soul, that person is utterly, victoriously delivered every single time. He will lose none who were given to him. All whom he calls to himself will hear the call of the shepherd and they will come. Christ wins every time. Those then who claim saving faith in Christ ought to evidence this victory in your lives. Do you hear that? If you claim that you belong to Christ, you should be a walking picture, a walking video of the fact that Christ has won. And he has. And we must. Henry said that sin will Christ loosen and dissolve more and more until he has quite destroyed it. 
Do you hear the progressive nature in that? You know, there, there, is, there was that victory, right? Christ cried out at the cross, it's finished. And it was. But there's also this progressive victory that is revealed throughout the rest of history until the return of Christ. That, that is seen both in our individual lives and even in the whole of the world. For you will progressively walk in the victory of Christ over sin. Just because your eyes have been enlightened, your heart has been opened and brought to life, you've come to, to faith in Christ, just because all of that has happened does not mean you will have perfect victory today, presently, over sin. It's progressive. Sin will he dissolve more and more, and depending on your views of the end times, your, your eschatological views, you, you may see this next part a little differently than I do, but there is this progressive nature in Christ's victory in the world. The world will get more and more sinful. Evil men will proceed from bad to worse on and on until Christ returns to rule and reign on this world. And certainly until Christ destroys all of this world and comes to rule and reign on the new heaven and new earth. That is the progressive nature of Christ's victory over Satan. And when that happens, Satan is cast and bound into hell for the rest of eternity. He came for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil just as you think about that progressive nature uh, of, of Christ's victory, do you realize that as disciplers, and so disciplers just with one another, and especially probably as parents, we need to realize the progressive nature of the Christian life. Yes, there should and there must be immediate evidence when a soul comes to Christ, but it's going to be progressive, just, just like Christ reveals his victory more and more and more over time. So too is that revealed in a saint's life more and more over time. So we don't wink at sin. We don't, we don't allow sin to go unchecked. But dear friend, let's understand as you invest your life in another that there's still going to be sins and struggles and there needs to be progress. And so on our end, if you're the one if you're the one watching someone and wondering why they've not made the progress, let's look with patience. Let, let's be long-suffering while also standing on truth. So what is our role in this victory of Christ? What do we do? Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I want to come one more time to Henry's statement. In the last sentence, he said, Let us not serve or indulge what the Son of God came to destroy. When you sin, when I sin, we are serving and indulging the very works that Christ came to destroy. Do not serve and indulge the sins that were laid upon Christ at the cross. Do not allow them to reign in your present life. You remember, those sins were nailed to him. The decrees against you were nailed to him on the cross. Do not serve and indulge that which held the Savior under the eternal wrath of our Holy Father. 
I was reading a little bit this week from uh, a sermon from Mike Ricardi back at the Puritan Conference this past, um, not this past October, maybe the year before, and he quoted Ralph Venning, who is a, a 16th century, or a 1600s, a 17th century Puritan. And Venning said, It is the design and the work of sin to make man eternally miserable and to undo him soul and body forever. That's what sin's goal is, and Christ came to destroy that. You, as a saint, must walk in that victory. You must pursue increasing victory over sin because ultimately, sin is miserable. The work of sin is to make you eternally miserable and to completely utterly undo you? Why would you indulge something that seeks to make you miserable for all eternity? Christ came to destroy the works of Satan. Thirdly, this morning in verses 9 and 10, we see the seed distinguished, the seed of God distinguished. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is ultimately a continuation of thought from the previous verse and the previous statement. We are God's seed. We are his children. The seed of God's Son abides in us through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Christ was God's seed, Jesus was his seed, and Christ dwells in us through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. But John says here that the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. That is the work of this indwelling Holy Spirit. It it clearly separates you and identifies you as either a child of God because you're walking in the Spirit or a child of the devil because you're walking according to the flesh. John goes as far as to say that he cannot sin. You cannot sin because you're in God. Now, remember the context of that statement. It doesn't mean that you will never sin one time. It means that you cannot practice sin when God's seed abides in you. And we could exhort plenty with that statement, but but rather than pointing you to what you ought to do in light of that statement, I want you to consider the great, great encouragement. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. That is a promise from the Lord to you who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit that you will never be able to wander into the practice of sin. doesn't mean that the remaining flesh won't try to take you there. But it means that the Holy Spirit of God will always bring you back and bring you to repentance. Take courage from that. Take encouragement from that. This is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. He renews you day by day. You you fall into a little bit of sin, and by the grace of God, His Spirit brings you to repentance through the truth, through revealing the truth of His Word, and, and then you don't fall into the practice. He puts you back on the path. Now, you may stumble again, and by His grace, He puts you back on the path. 
But because his seed abides in you, you cannot practice sin. And if Christ does not allow his people to fall into the practice of sin through the working of the Holy Spirit, how could we, the church, the bride of Christ, allow someone to practice and abide and remain unchecked in sin? No, we, as soon as we see sin in one another's lives, we patiently, lovingly, graciously, but diligently and decisively act. Because Christ doesn't allow it, so how do we have authority over Christ to allow someone to continue unchecked in their sin? Dear friend, we don't. If Christ will offer correction through the Spirit, we ought to imitate our Savior and do the same. The word obvious in verse 10 is significant. It comes from the term that speaks of light shining. So it's related to that word in verse 5 when it said that Christ appeared. He, he shined as a light to take away our sins. Just, just as he appeared and shines light, so too is there a, a clear light shining that separates those in light and those in darkness. It's obvious. It is illuminated. It is clear. You don't have to wonder. That's why we keep coming back to this idea that there's only two possible paths because the children of God and the children of the devil, John says, are obvious. There's no question about it. Dear friend, let's stand hard where the Scripture stands. Anyone, John says, who practices unrighteousness, anyone who does not practice righteousness, is not of God. If the pattern and the habit of a life is not to practice righteousness, that's an identification of a person who does not belong to the Most High. And, and that doesn't mean that we shun them. It means that we evangelize them and give them the gospel and bring the truth to bear on that practice of sin. We ought to be straightforward even in that with, uh, again, especially our children. You know, as, as my children are getting older, I'm starting to see this, this need to just bring such clarity in the division between the life of those who are in Christ and the life of those who are not in Christ. But because we, we can't just, just give these vague, hard-to-understand requirements of, well, yeah, you're, you're going to sin some, but you're going to repent. Yeah, that's true. But we need to be clear because Scripture is clear. We need to let them clearly see that sinful practice identifies them as those who do not belong to the Lord. And likewise, a heart that desires to practice righteousness identifies you as a child of God. We need clarity. We need not waver or apologize for this because ultimately, as we began with, this is a deceptive work of Satan and Satan's followers who try to blur the lines between righteousness and sinful practice. Our position, dear saints, is that we are in Christ. His Spirit is in us, His seed abides in us, and therefore we do not and we cannot practice sin. And therefore, we must join with Christ to wage war against Satan. Christ appeared in order to destroy the works of Satan. 
We need to be on guard and we need to not be deceived. If Christ appeared to destroy the works of Satan, do you think that he would ever fail? Do you think there would ever be one that Christ tries to redeem, but he just can't quite pull that person out of the muck and mire and dirt of sin? No. When Christ sets his love and affection on one, when the Father in eternity past has chosen and called and predestined a person to be his child, every time, 100%, that person will be plucked out of the, their sin They'll be pulled off the path to hell, and they will be put on the straight and narrow path to heaven in righteousness by the working of the Holy Spirit. In closing, looking ahead, because I don't want to leave the last statement of verse 10 just out there for you to wonder. John says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Being in the Lord is evidenced by holy life and by brotherly love. And John's about to embark on a long section that, that goes through this call to love, so we don't have to dive into that today. But we do need to understand, dear saints, that it's not just that you close yourself off and say, I'm living a holy life and it doesn't matter how I treat people. No, the ones who do not love their brothers show that they are not in Christ. So we must walk in Christ. We must live in Him. We must practice righteousness and pursue brotherly love. We must put away the sinful, hating, lustful works of the devil. We must walk by the Spirit of God and the good works that He has prepared for us. Dear friends, we walk by the Spirit, and we do so for the glory of God. The one who practices righteousness belongs to God. The one who does not belongs to Satan. Examine your heart, examine your life, and ensure that you are in the faith. And if you're not in the faith, dear friend, that's not too late to repent to believe in Christ and to give your life to Him. But you must repent and you must turn from your sins because the one who abides and lives in Christ cannot practice sin. So may we pursue righteousness by the powerful working of the Spirit of God and may our chief aim ever and always be God's glory in all that we do. Let's pray.